Chapter Five, Part One of Through the Brazilian Wilderness. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tom Clifton. Through the Brazilian Wilderness by Theodore Roosevelt, Chapter Five, Up the River of Tapers, Part One. After leaving Caceres, we went up the Septatuba which in the local Indian dialect means River of Tapers. This river is only navigable for boats of size when the water is high. It is a swift, fairly clear stream rushing down from the Plan Alto, the high uplands, through the tropical lowland forest. On the right hand, or western bank, and here and there on the left bank, the forest is broken by natural pastures and meadows, and at one of these places, known as Porto Campo, sixty or seventy miles above the mouth there is a good-sized cattle ranch. Here we halted because the launch and the two pranches, native trading boats, with houses on their decks, which it towed, could not carry our entire party and outfit. Accordingly, most of the baggage and some of the party were sent ahead to where we were to meet our pack train at Taperapoan. Meanwhile, the rest of us made our first camp under tents at Porto Campo to wait the return of the boats. The tents were placed in a line, with the tent of Colonel Rondon and the tent in which Kermit and I slept in the middle, beside one another. In front of these two, on tall poles, stood the Brazilian and American flags, and at sunrise and sunset the flags were hoisted and hauled down while the trumpet sounded, and all of us stood at attention. Camp was pitched beside the ranch buildings, and the trees near the tents grew wonderful violet orchids. Many birds were around us. I saw some of them, and Shiri and Miller, many, many more. They ranged from party-colored macaws, green parrots, and big gregarious cuckoos, down to a brilliant green and chestnut kingfisher, five and a quarter inches long, and a tiny orange and green mannequin, smaller than any bird I have ever seen except a hummer. We also saw a bird that really was protectively colored, a kind of whippoorwill, which even the sharp-eyed naturalist could only make out because it moved its head. We saw orange-bellied squirrels with showy orange tails. Lizards were common. We killed our first poisonous snake, the second we had seen, an evil lance-headed jaracara that was swimming the river. We also saw a black and orange harmless snake nearly eight feet long, which we are told was akin to the musamorama and various other snakes. One day, while paddling in a canoe on the river, Hoping that the dogs might drive a taper to us, they drove into the water a couple of small brush deer instead. There was no point in shooting them. We caught them with ropes thrown over their heads, for the naturalists needed them as specimens, and all of us needed the meat. One of the men was stung by a single big red marabundi wasp. For twenty-four hours he was in great pain and incapacitated for work. In the lagoon, two of the dogs had the tips of their tails bitten off by piranhas as they swam, and the ranch hands told us that in this lagoon one of their hounds had been torn to pieces and completely devoured by the ravenous fish. It was a further illustration of the uncertainty of temper and behavior of these ferocious little monsters. In other lagoons they had again and again left us and our dogs unmolested. They varied locally in aggressiveness, just as sharks and crocodiles in different seas and rivers vary. On the morning of January 9th, we started out for a taper hunt. Tapers are hunted with canoes, as they dwell in thick jungle and take to the water when hounds follow them. In this region, there were extensive papyrus swamps and big lagoons back from the river, and often the tapers fled to these for refuge, 
throwing off the hounds. In these places it was exceedingly difficult to get them. Our best chance was to keep to the river in canoes and paddle towards the spot in the direction of which the hounds, by the noise, seemed to be heading. We started in four canoes. Three of them were Indian dugouts, very low in the water. The fourth was our Canadian canoe, a beauty, light, safe, roomy, made of thin slats of wood and cement-covered canvas. Colonel Rondon, Fiala with his camera, and I went in this canoe, together with two paddlers. The paddlers were natives of the poorer class. They were good men. The bowsman was of nearly pure white blood, the steersman was of nearly pure negro blood, and was evidently the stronger character and the better men of the two. The two other canoes carried a couple of fazenderos, ranchmen, who had come up from Caceres with their dogs. These dugouts were manned by Indian and half-caste paddlers, and the fazenderos, who were nearly pure white blood, also at times paddled vigorously. All were dressed in substantially similar clothes, the difference being that those of the camaradas, the poorer men or laborers, were in tatters. In the canoes, no man wore anything save a shirt, trousers, and hat, the feet being bare. On horseback, they wore long leather leggings, which were really simple high, rather flexible boots with the soles off. Their spurs were on the tough bare feet. There was every gradation between and among the nearly pure whites, Negroes, and Indians. On the whole, there was the most white blood in the upper ranks and the most Indian and Negro blood among the camaradas. But there were exceptions in both classes, and there was no discrimination on account of color. All alike were courteous and friendly. The hounds were at first carried in two of the dugouts, and then let loose on the banks. We went upstream for a couple of hours against the swift current, the paddlers making good headway with their pointed paddles. The broad blade of each paddle was tipped with a long point, so that it could be thrust into the mud to keep the low dugout against the bank. The tropical forest came down almost like a wall. The tall trees laced together with vines, and the spaces between their trunks filled with a low, dense jungle. In most places it could only be penetrated by a man with a machete. With few exceptions the trees were unknown to me, and their native names told me nothing. On most of them the foliage was thick, among the exceptions were the Cecropias, growing by preference on the new-formed alluvial soil bare of other trees, whose rather scanty leaf bunches were, as I was informed, the favorite food of sloths. We saw one or two squirrels among the trees, and a family of monkeys. There were few sandbanks in the river, and no waterfowl save an occasional cormorant. But as we pushed along near the shore, where the branches overhung and dipped in the swirling water, we continually roused little flocks of bats. They were hanging from the boughs right over the river, and when our approach roused them, they zigzagged rapidly in front of us for a few rods, and then again dove in among the branches. At last we landed at a point of ground where there was little jungle, and where the forest was composed of palms and was fairly open. It was a lovely bit of forest. The colonel strolled off in one direction, returning an hour later with a squirrel for the naturalists. Meanwhile, Fiala and I went through the palm wood to a papyrus swamp. Many trails led through the woods, and especially along the borders of the swamp, and although the principal makers had evidently been cattle, yet there were in them footprints of both taper and deer. The taper makes a footprint much like that of a small rhinoceros, being one of the odd-toed ungulates. We could hear the dogs now and then, evidently scattered and running on various trails. They were a worthless lot of cur-hounds. 
they would chase tapir or deer or anything else that ran away from them as long as the trail was easy to follow but they were not staunch even after animals that fled and they would have nothing whatever to do with animals that were formidable while standing by the marsh we heard something coming along one of the game paths in a moment a buck of the bigger species of the bush deer appeared a very pretty and graceful creature it stopped and darted back as soon as it saw us giving us no chance for a shot but in another moment we caught glimpses of it running by at full speed back among the palms i covered an opening between two tree trunks by good luck the buck appeared in the right place giving me just time to hold well ahead of him and fire at the report he went down in a heap the umbrella pointed bullet going in at one shoulder and ranging forward breaking the neck the leaden portion of the bullet in the proper mushroom or umbrella shape stopped under the neck skin on the farthest side it is a very effective bullet miller particularly wished specimens of these various species of bush deer because their mutual relationships have not yet been satisfactorily worked out this was an old buck the antlers were single spikes five or six inches long they were old and white and soon would have been shed in the stomach were the remains of both leaves and grasses, but especially the former. The buck was both a browser and a grazer. There were also seeds, but no berries or nuts, such as I have sometimes found in deer's stomachs. This species, which is abundant in this neighborhood, is solitary in its habits, not going in herds. At this time the rut was past. The bucks no longer sought the does. The fawns had not been born and the yearlings had left their mothers so that each animal usually went by itself when chased they were very apt to take to the water this instinct of taking to the water by the way is quite explicable as it regards both deer and taper for it affords them refuge against their present-day natural foes but it is a little puzzling to see the jaguar readily climbing trees to escape dogs for ages have passed since there were in this habitat any natural foes from which it needed to seek safety in the trees but it is possible that the habit has been kept alive by its seeking refuge in them on occasion from the big peccaries which were among the beasts on which it ordinarily preys we hung the buck in a tree the colonel returned and not long afterward one of the paddlers who had been watching the river called out to us that there was a taper in the water a good distance upstream and that two of the other boats were after it. We jumped into the canoe, and the two paddlers dug their blades in the water as they drove her against the strong current, edging over for the opposite bank. The taper was coming downstream at a great rate, only its queer head above water, while dugouts were closing rapidly on it, the paddlers uttering loud cries. As the taper turned slightly to one side or the other, the long, slightly upturned snout and the strongly pronounced arch of the crest along the head and upper neck gave it a marked and unusual aspect. I could not shoot, for it was directly in the line with one of the pursuing dugouts. Suddenly it dived. The snout, being slightly curved downward as it did so, there was no trace of it. We gazed eagerly in all directions. The dugout in front came alongside our canoe, and the paddlers rested, their paddles ready. Then we made out the taper, clambering up the bank. It had dived at right angles to the course it was following, and swum under the water to the very edge of the shore, rising under the overhanging tree branches at a point where a drinking trail for game led down a break in the bank. The branches partially hid it, and it was in deep shadow, so that it did not offer a very good shot. 
My bullet went into its body too far back, and the taper disappeared in the forest at a gallop as if unhurt, although the bullet really secured it by making it unwilling to trust to its speed and leave the neighborhood of the water. Three or four of the hounds were by this time swimming the river, leaving the others yelling on the opposite side, and as soon as the swimmers reached the shore they were put on the taper's trail and galloped after it, giving tongue. In a couple of minutes we saw the taper take to the water far upstream, and after it we went as fast as the paddlers could urge us through the water. We were not in time to head it, but fortunately some of the dogs had come down to the river's edge at the very point where the taper was about to land, and turned it back. Two or three of the dogs were swimming. We were more than half the breadth of the river away from the taper, and somewhat downstream when it dived. It made an astonishingly long swim beneath the water this time, almost as if it had been a hippopotamus, for it passed completely under our canoe, and rose between us and the hither bank. I shot it, the bullet going into its brain, while it was thirty or forty yards from shore. It sank at once. There was now nothing to do but wait until the body floated. I feared that the strong current would roll it downstream over the river bed, but my companions assured me that this was not so, and that the body would remain where it was until it rose, which would be in about an hour or two. They were right, except as to the time. For over a couple of hours we paddled or anchored ourselves by clutching branches close to the spot, or else drifted down a mile, and paddled up again near the shore, to see if the body had caught anywhere. Then we crossed the river, and had lunch at the lovely natural picnic ground, where the big buck was hung up. We had very nearly given up on the taper, when it suddenly floated only a few rods from where it had sunk. With no little difficulty, the big round black body was hoisted into the canoe, and we all turned our prows downstream. The skies had been lowering for some time, and now, too late to interfere with the hunt or cause us any annoyance, a heavy downpour of rain came on and beat upon us. Little we cared, as the canoe raced forward with the taper and the buck lying in the bottom, and a dry, comfortable camp ahead of us. When we reached camp and Father Zom saw the taper, he reminded me of something I had completely forgotten when, some six years previously, he had spoken to me in the White House about taking this South American trip, I had answered that I could not, as I intended to go to Africa, but added that I hoped some day to go to South America, and that if I did I should try to shoot both a jaguar and a taper, as they were the characteristic big-game animals of the country. Well, said Father Zom, now you shot them both. The storm continued heavy until after sunset. Then the rain stopped, and the full moon broke through the cloud-rack. Father Zom and I walked up and down in the moonlight, talking of many things from Dante and our own plans for the future, to the deeds and the wanderings of the old-time Spanish conquistadors in their search for the gilded king, and to the Portuguese adventurers who then divided with them the mastery of the oceans and of the unknown continents beyond. This was an attractive and interesting camp in more ways than one. The vaqueros, with their wives and families, were housed on the two sides of the field in which our tents were pitched. On one side was a big, whitewashed, tile-roofed house in which the foreman dwelt, an olive-skinned, slightly-built, wiry man, with an olive-skinned wife and eight as pretty, fair-haired children as one could wish to see. He usually went barefoot, and his manners were not merely good, but distinguished. Corrals and outbuildings were near this big house. 
on the opposite side of the field stood the row of steep roofed palm-thatched huts in which the ordinary cowhands lived with their dusky helpmates and children each night from these palm-thatched quarters we heard the faint sounds of a music that went far back of civilization to a savage ancestry nearby in point of time and otherwise immeasurably remote for through the still hot air under the brilliant moonlight we heard the monotonous throbbing of a tom-tom drum and the twanging of some old stringed instrument the small black turkey buzzards here always called crows were as tame as chickens near the big house walking on the ground or perched in the trees beside the corral waiting for the offal of slaughtered cattle two palm trees near our tent were crowded with a long hanging nest of one of the kakik orioles we lived well with plenty of tapir beef which was good and venison of the bush deer which was excellent and as much ordinary beef as we wished and fresh milk too a rarity in this country there were very few mosquitoes and everything was as comfortable as possible the taper i killed was a big one i did not wish to kill another unless of course it became advisable to do so for food whereas i did wish to get some specimens of the big white-lipped peccary the cachada which is pronounced cachada of the brazilians which would make our collection of the big mammals of the brazilian forest almost complete the remaining members of the party killed two or three more tapers one was a bull bull-grown but very much smaller than the animal i had killed the hunters said that this was a distinct kind the skull and skin were sent back with the other specimens to the american museum where after due examination and comparison its specific identity will be established tapers are solitary beasts two are rarely found together except in the case of a cow and its spotted and streaked calf they live in dense cover usually lying down in the daytime and at night coming out to feed and going to the river or to some lagoon to bathe and swim from this camp sig took lieutenant lyra back to caceres to get something that had been overlooked they went in a rowboat to which the motor had been attached and at night on the way back almost ran over a taper that was swimming but in unfrequented places tapers both feed and bathe during the day the stomach of the one i shot contained big palm nuts they had been swallowed without enough mastication to break the kernel the outer pulp being what the taper prized tapers gallop well and their tough hide and wedge shape enable them to go at speed through very dense cover they try to stamp on and even to bite a foe but are only clumsy fighters the taper is a very archaic type of ungulate not unlike the non-specialized beast of the oglacine from some such ancestral type the highly specialized one-toed modern horse has evolved while during the uncounted ages that saw the horse thus develop the taper has continued substantially unchanged originally the tapers dwelt in the northern hemisphere but there they gradually died out the more specialized horse and even for long ages the rhinoceros persisting after they had vanished and nowadays the surviving tapers are found in malaysia and south america far from their original home the relations of the horse and taper in the paleontological history of south america are very curious both were geologically speaking comparatively recent immigrants and if they came at different dates it is almost certain that the horse came later the horse for an age or two certainly for many hundreds of thousands of years throve greatly and developed not only several different species but even different genera it was much the most highly specialized of the two and in other continental regions where both were found the horse outlasted the taper 
but in South America the taper outlasted the horse. From unknown causes, the various genera and species of horses died out, while the taper has persisted. The highly specialized, highly developed beasts, which represented such a full evolutionary development, died out, while their less specialized remote kinsfolk, which had not developed, clung to life and throve, and this although the direct reverse was occurring in North America and in the Old World. It is one of the innumerable and at present insoluble problems in the history of life on our planet. End of chapter 5, part 1